Hi, everyone. I wanted to let you all know that today's episode is going to be discussing some sensitive materials like assault and toxic relationship culture. So if this is a topic that is uncomfortable for you or might be triggering, feel free to skip this episode. Hello, and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, and for the next six episodes, we're going to be joined by different Jewish people who were involved in the Jewish organization that I worked for before I quit to work and be an internet hoe and work at a sex club. So for anyone listening who only knows one Jewish person or no Jewish people, I think this will really drive home the point that we are people with diverse opinions and not one of us can speak for all Jewish people. And on that note, today we're joined by Olivia. Olivia is a senior in high school living on occupied Clackamas land. Did I say that correctly? Clackamas. Clackamas. Okay. We have different land that is occupied here in Toronto. Uh, so she's coming from colonial Portland, Oregon. She's the president of her Jewish youth group's local region and has been heavily involved with the organization throughout all of high school. She's also president of a school group called Students Active for Ending Rape and is committed through this and other avenues to consent education and sexual violence awareness and prevention. Olivia, say hi. Did I miss anything? Hello. Thank you for having me. I think that about covers it. Uh, so just for our listeners, you are 18 but you are still in high school, correct? Correct. I am a senior. Excellent. You're our first official uh, young person. I say that in quotations, but like our first official person still in high school on the podcast. So it's very exciting for me. Today in Sex News, the article that we're covering is called For Continuity's Sake, Addressing Hookup Culture in Jewish Youth Groups. And I believe I found this article, but you also told me about this article because it's such an excellent, comprehensive one that really gets to some of the issues faced by young Jewish people today. So I'm going to summarize it, and then I figured we'd shoot the shit, and you can talk a little bit about what you've done in your own Jewish youth group, if that works for you. Yeah, totally. Cool. So it's from ejewishphilanthropy.com, and it was published September 3rd, 2020. This article was written by six different women who are incredibly upset by the Jewish social teen experience in North America, specifically how youth groups foster a hypersexualized atmosphere, sexist culture, rape culture, all while claiming to nourish young Jews and propel Jewish continuity. Every single woman involved in writing this piece described experiences of feeling sexual pressure, slut-shaming, and toxic hookup culture centered around male pleasure specifically. It also details the point system, um, which to remind our listeners, the point system is the idea that each person in an organization is attributed an amount of points depending on how involved they are, and you are supposed to collect points over the course of your time in this organization. Many Jewish organizations for teens have it. The staff do not sanction it, but it's happening anyway, and we all know about it because when we were teens in these youth groups, we had the point system too. One notable quote from the article Steeped in a heteronormative culture that worships and sexualizes women, participants feel coerced to have hookups during events and conventions for the full experience, ending up in intimate encounters with participants whose names they don't even know. And then they end it by noting that when sharing these experiences as, as adults, the culture has not actually changed for young people today. So what do you think of this article? I think it is 100% true. I had so many points of connection and agreement as I was reading it. And I also ended up being in conversation with the makers of that um, and kind of talking through some ways that, at least in my youth organization, we can start to make some more tangible changes around this um, because it really is true. And talking in, to adults, we've seen this as well, that this culture that is so prevalent in our Jewish youth spaces doesn't really go away over the years or over the generations. It just evolves to work with whatever is trendy at the time or, for instance, with the internet and even being online as we're in quarantine. It kind of just evolves to fit whatever the norm is during that time. Can you give an example 
of what you mean by that? Yeah. So one example would be that now the pressure to, you know, hook up with people or just have any like sort of sexual interactions becomes very publicized and normalized. And in fact, the organization that I'm in has had different, you know, photos on social media or videos on TikTok, for instance, of people um, engaging in sexual activity without their consent, which is in and of itself a form of sexual harassment, but it becomes even more normalized and more encouraged for people to be acting this way, even though it's unacceptable and unconsensual, because they can spread it through the internet and have pretty casual yet somewhat harmful dialogue about it throughout the comment section. And it just enables a lot of gossip and a lot of talking about what's happening and kind of causing drama without getting to the root problematic causes of it. You're referring to one example that I can think of is there is a big uh, international convention dance party that all the teens go to and they'll end up making out on the dance floor and other teens will run around taking selfies with people making out behind them specifically to post on social media and shame those people who are making out. Like that as an example of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's totally one, but it doesn't only happen at international convention as well. It happens in our more local communities. I think it becomes more evident that that's problematic as we get down to those local communities because people are doing it to expose or shame their friends or people that they know. It's not, it's still a public display of affection, but it's with people that you know. So I guess the consequences are more personal. The impact might be more harmful emotionally if it's coming from a friend. So it's happening in all of our spaces, but I would say that at international convention, it is definitely very prevalent. And especially with what the article was talking about, you know, hooking up with people that you don't know or Mm -hmm. whose name you never learn. I think that's definitely something um, more prevalent on the international level where, you know, there are obviously before COVID thousands of teens in this space, many of whom have never met each other or even heard of who the other was. Let's take a step back. Do you want to explain a little bit about the organization that you're a part of, generally how it's structured and what you just spent the last year doing within it? Yeah, absolutely. So the organization I'm a part of operates really on three levels, which is the chapter, regional, or council in some places, and international. So there are kind of those three distinct stages of it. The whole organization is fundamentally based in a binary system. So there is two kind of parts of the organization you can be in. And although our membership is not only men and women, male and female, you can only go into one of those two spaces. And one of them is very clearly distinguished to be for cis, mostly men, um, and one for women. Um, it even has girls in the name. So that in and of itself is kind of sets up this heteronormative structure that we have. Right. They call it the fraternity sorority system. And I know that the fraternity side really does funnel a lot of the men into the university fraternities that are set up for Jewish people. It's like almost a direct funnel system. Yeah, absolutely. So the binary is definitely there. It is. And they even partner with different fraternities and Jewish ones especially to kind of make that pipeline happen. And on the chapter level, it's usually people who are in the same half of the organization. So the half that is quote unquote for boys, the half that is quote unquote for girls, they'll usually just be in chapters with each other. But then when we get to the council and regional and international level, you see that that's where the mixing starts to happen. And for heterosexual teens, 
especially that's where the hooking up happens. That's where hookup culture becomes much more prevalent. I would say on the chapter level, it isn't as much of an issue, mostly because it's a lot of cisgender heterosexual teens predominantly, which can end up creating a really isolating culture for queer, non-binary, and trans teens. But once we kind of get off of the chapter level, that's when you see the most hooking up happening. And that is when um, this culture really starts to become a lot more evident among teens. So the reason someone might sign up for this organization, I'm assuming, has someone who worked for it, is the idea that you are joining a social friend group that's different from school. You're getting culture building opportunities with other Jewish teens, so your parents are thrilled. And for some people, the benefits are you get to make new friends and potentially talk to people of the opposite gender that they're interested in potentially hooking up with. It like diversifies your dating pool. But I also know that at the chapter level, it's frequently just a lot of people hanging out on a frequent basis and forming deep, lasting friendships. Uh, and then at the regional level, it's the region coming together. I just wanted to explain that for people who might be confused as to what are people actually doing at this organization. Yeah. So I saw chapter programs that ranged from a group of people getting together and making friendship bracelets to playing football to learning about Jewish holidays. It's just really a social group, which is, I think, why hookup culture is so prevalent in it. It is about socializing. And before we move on, so people aren't too concerned, what does hooking up mean to young people today? Can you define hooking up? So I'm going to give it my best shot, but part of what can be very problematic about this idea of hooking up is that it becomes somewhat of an expectation, but there isn't really a clear definition of what it means. Essentially, if I could kind of sum it up into one thing, it would be sexual interactions that don't involve the two or more partners engaging in it, being in any sort of committed relationship. So that could be anywhere from kissing to having sex, any kind of sex, because sex doesn't even really have a solid definition. But it's really, the main point is that the people are not in a committed relationship with each other. So it is, you know, said to be more casual, can happen more frequently, and especially in spaces where we're having briefer interactions with people, or on the international level, we might never see these people again. Um, it becomes much more common in those spaces. I know that for the majority of people, sometimes they'll say hook up and they mean make out, but there are there are other teens where they do mean more than just making out. Yeah, I think it really does depend on what environment that person is coming from, um, but it also is what makes consent and, you know, just good communication uh, within the interaction and in setting boundaries. That's what makes it um, a little bit more ambiguous, and that's when we see especially that sexual violence can become a huge problem in these spaces, especially since a lot of these teens are not getting a very comprehensive sex education in their schooling or in their personal lives. So then we see they're not learning how to communicate boundaries. They're not learning how to ask for consent. And with hooking up, they don't necessarily know what they're you know, going into this interaction to do. So there can be a lot of confusion around that and therefore a lack of communication. And that's where we see that this culture can have some really dangerous consequences for teens. Which brings us to what you did this past year with this organization. Yeah. So I am one, I'm the president of my region, as Ray said in my introduction. That opened up the opportunity for me to bring 
a piece of legislation to our international business meetings. This is, so to clarify, this is a teen-led organization. So the business meetings and a lot of the self-governing happens by the teens themselves. So there's teen leadership planning out what's happening. An adult staff will support the chapter in the region and the international teens uh, to to, you know, meet their goals and help the movement grow. But a lot of the actual decision making is happening theoretically by the teens themselves. And that happens at the chapter level with board meetings. It happens at the regional level with board meetings and the international level, which it very much parallels the same government chain of like local, state or municipal and then federal. Sorry, please continue, Olivia. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. So back in October, I brought a piece of legislation to Uh, the international business meetings that was passed by all of the other community presidents. So that's, you know, people all over the United States and all over North America, as well as globally. We have a lot of international communities as well. I believe there are 50 countries involved at this time. Yeah, something like that. So it might even be a bigger number at this point, but lots of communities involved. So me and a couple of my other peers brought a motion to the floor at those business meetings to require staff and teen leaders to talk about consent at all events above the chapter level. So most chapters have weekly or every other week, they'll hold meetings or events uh, where they do a program, but any, any event above that level, so in the regional, council, or international level, this piece requires them to talk about consent. So examples would be at a regional convention or Shabbaton, which is a weekend-long immersive retreat, the international convention, which is, I believe, a week plus whatever the pre-summits are, so anywhere from like five to seven days. So anything like that at all of the camp programming that I believe are like two-week to three-week retreats, that's where this consent training would be mandatory. Yeah, so it applies to all of those things, which I think is super important because those are definitely the more social gatherings that we hold. But it also applies at things like JSERV, which is a worldwide service event that our organization does every year where teens engage in different activities. So even things that are seemingly unrelated, for instance, we also do a big Shabbat event that everyone participates in one Shabbat weekend and things like that that, you know, maybe don't seem so related and a lot of people get really uncomfortable at the thought of, you know, talking about sex or talking about consent in the context of an event that doesn't seem to be for the inherent purpose of socializing. And they say, why is that necessary here? Why do we need to do that? When realistically, at any event where our teens are going to be interacting with each other, whether that be in person or online, because digital sexual harassment is also a really huge issue, as we were kind of talking about also with recording people earlier, we see that it becomes important at any event where teens are interacting with each other and that it's not really, it's not a problem of, you know, talking about sex to teenagers and bringing up this conversation that my organization doesn't really want to be facilitating with youth. It's about keeping them safe. When, we, when we're talking about consent, when we're having these conversations, it's not about encouraging a sex-positive environment, although personally that's what I would like to see in our organization. But, you know, there's kind of some pushback um, on the international level of, you know, what exactly the organization as an entity is encouraging. But the purpose of that motion and the purpose of having these consent talks is not about creating 
some environment that encourages teens to hook up with each other or to have sexual interactions. It's encouraging them to know how to keep themselves and any potential partners safe. It's really about safety, which I think is super, super important to emphasize. I have two questions. So the first one is, in your mind, what does this consent training look like at an event like JSERVE or Global Shabbat or a convention? Technically, non-sexual, like the code of conduct prohibits sexual touching at these spaces anyway. And, you know, most, most adults who are uncomfortable with these conversations would just point to that and go, well, it's not allowed. So we don't need to have these conversations. So in your mind, what would be the ideal way of having them in a way that is comprehensive and not weird? Yeah, so there was kind of some concern about that as we were writing this legislation um, because it is set forth in the rules for our organization that sexual interactions aren't supposed to be happening at those events. Yet we have to be realistic about what is actually going on and what staff are kind of not addressing or sweeping under the rug. On the one hand, I understand like how sweeping people hooking up and having sexual interactions under the rug is kind of the easier way to go about things because it will continue to happen even though it's in the code of conduct that it's not supposed to. But where we kind of have to draw the line and not accept that and address it is when teens are being harassed and assaulted um, and when their safety is being put in jeopardy at these events, uh, which the people who wrote the article we were talking about earlier actually have an Instagram, Jewish Teens for Empowered Consent, where they accept submissions of harassment or assault that are happening in youth groups and sharing these stories anonymously, which is super powerful. I would really encourage anyone listening to go check that out. I think in practice, what we have done so far as kind of a starting point is we've written a list of community agreements about what is going to be acceptable and what isn't. It doesn't strictly condone having sexual interactions, but what it does set forth is that any interactions that teens are having, whether they be digital, physical, verbal, any of the above, need to be consensual. And it very clearly puts forth what consent is. We used a great model that Planned Parenthood put forth with the FRIES acronym that you're with. We've gone over that in season. For anyone who's confused, go to episode three of this podcast. We go over it there with sex educator Carly Bassian. Please continue. Yeah. So we put forth very clearly this is what consent is, and it is an expectation if you want to be in spaces in this organization and kind of sets this precedent that sexual harassment and sexual violence in general is not going to be tolerated in those spaces. So definitely a powerful message to put forth and one that kind of addresses the culture that becomes really toxic in a way that I haven't seen in my time in the organization. Are you worried that people will take it as a joke? And one example that I can give is we in our region, when I worked for this organization, we made it an option that people could have space to put their pronouns on their name tags. And a lot of the gentlemen from that side of the organization started putting in joke names until someone walked up to them, also me, saying that this is here for certain people who are part of our community right now. And this isn't a joke because there are people who are in our community that we want to make feel welcome. And then they, you know, 
realize that we were serious about it and it wasn't space to be dickheads about it. But are I know that even, even in adults, you'll have certain people saying, may I have permission to touch your shoulder? And I'm like, thanks for asking. It's really respectful that you did. You do not. You know, things like that. Are you worried that some people are going to take this as a joke? Absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind that people will take it as a joke. And I think a lot of that comes from a lack of compassion and imagination for what the people in their very spaces may have experienced or may be subject to experience. And it's definitely an unfortunate reality, especially among youth, but I'm sure across age as well, of you know what's okay to make jokes about, what's okay to kind of disregard as important. At the same time, I think my overwhelming sense, and I say this both from my own experiences with passing this and from other teens who have come to me with feedback, the overwhelming reaction has been very positive, whether it be teens who are survivors of sexual violence coming to talk to me about you know, the impact it has had in their communities or just any teen who wants to be an ally and to start having these conversations. Um, I've seen some really, really good feedback, despite the fact that people are going to continue to be disrespectful and continue to be really lacking compassion. I think that doesn't change the fact that it does have a really positive impact for, well, it can have a really positive impact. I don't want to speak for survivors in saying this, but it can have a really positive impact. And even if some people are making jokes about it, they're still hearing the information of what consent is. um, And we're still maybe forcing them into that uncomfortable place to be thinking about those things before they interact with other people. So regardless of if they take it seriously, I think it's very worth the positive impacts that it can have for those people who are going to listen or even if they don't want to listen, are still having to hear that information and be exposed to it in some way, whether or not they want to process it. One of the things we talked about in our pre-call was the fact that you and your peers demanded, one of, one of your demands in the legislature, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, one of the, pe- the items in the legislature was that you wanted an external organization to come and do the consent training or help build the consent training. Why did you think it was important to have an external organization help with that? Well, the space primarily is obviously not about sex education and it's not about teaching teens um, how to have consensual interactions with each other. There are several mental health workers and social workers within the organization who we've been working with and they're wonderful. They are um, super receptive to our feedback and are really centering our perspectives, which I think is super important. At the same time, they're not trained like a sex educator or someone who helps with sexual violence education and prevention. They're not trained in the same way to address the specificities of teaching about consent, training adults and teens alike about consent, and with sexual violence prevention and response as well. So when we were writing this, we wanted to be very clear that this culture is not currently being addressed in our conver- in our organization and that it requires something more than we currently have to address it. And we wanted them to also be pushed a little bit more to 
really internalized within the organization that this needs to be a priority that requires more than, you know, just making a list of talking points and that it's important that we're bringing people in who specialize in this area and in this field to ensure that it's going to be the absolute best that it can. I Yeah. One of the things I think I sent this to you a few weeks ago, I wrote a blog post about why I decided to leave this organization and devote my life to being a sex educator. And one thing that I noticed was a lot of current and former staff of this organization reached out to me to say, excellent article. I totally agree with you. And one of the main points that I put forth was that individuals really want to talk about consent and give young people the tools to have these complex conversations, but institutions keep us from doing so. And there's a fear of parents pulling their kids from the organization. And since it's a nonprofit, they'll lose funding because there's less people involved or less parents paying their dues. There's just a general fear of what does it say about us? And, you know, sex is a touchy subject, especially when it comes to young people. But the staff as a whole, I mean, some are uncomfortable with the topic. Some are a lot of our staff are not and would have loved to have been doing consent training and having these conversations with teens. We just weren't allowed to. So I know what it was like as a staff being in a room full of young people saying things that were so totally wrong and not being able to say anything also because you don't want to then get known as the like angry feminist staff member that that you can't talk to about anything. I tried anyway. I did anyway. I would still say things when I when I felt I could get away with it every once in a while. But uh, what was it like? I mean, how do how do you feel being in this environment right now? It's really difficult, even though we have passed this legislation, it is really hard to be in an environment where you are one of the folks who is most subjected. And by that, I mean, I'm not a cis hetero male. It's really difficult to know that there is a danger for you and be really ready to have that conversation with people and to be kind of brushed aside simply because it's uncomfortable for other teens or adults to be having. To me, I used to be really uncomfortable with this conversation as well, um, and I completely understand that feeling. At the same time, that discomfort will never take precedence for me over helping to ensure that myself and all of the people that I interact with and all of the teens, both in my region that I'm leading and just in this organization, are kept safe. Because the primary purpose of this organization is to give teens really meaningful Jewish experiences. And I think it definitely has the capacity to do that for a lot of people. But at the same time, if we're not properly equipping our teens to interact with each other respectfully and ultimately safely, then not only are we not providing teens with meaningful Jewish experiences, we can be sending them out of this organization with trauma that will impact the rest of their life. To me, that is what kind of changed this conversation from something that I wanted to be happening to a necessity that I was going to do as much as I could to change within it. Because there are plenty of people who, you know, go through this organization and leave feeling super great about their experiences. But at the same time, I think if even one teen 
leaves having been harassed or assaulted and ends up leaving feeling much worse about themselves or much more unsafe than they did coming in, we're doing a disservice to our Jewish youth. And I also think that in general, we have this really unique opportunity being in space together and especially being in Jewish space to educate ourselves and each other and have these conversations with each other about consent and about sex education, um, especially since there's such this emphasis, not so much for me since I come from an interfaith family, but I know that many of my other friends have this like pressure to, you know, marry. Be fruitful and multiply. Exactly. And that's kind of like an ongoing joke within like the Jewish community and among Jewish youth, especially that like, you know, you should be with a Jewish person or that like your type should be Jewish. And if that's the case, fine. If that's someone's individual preference, okay. I can't say it's mine, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shame them for that. But at the same time, like when everyone in your, when everyone in your, in your, uh, your brother chapter literally looks like your brother, you don't want to fuck that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I think at the same time, it's like, okay, if we're going to emphasize this whole, you know, furthering the Jewish future by, oh, you should marry a Jew, you should have kids with a Jew, whatever it may be, then we need to also be talking about consent because you can't encourage these things but not encourage it in a safe way, especially if you know that sexual violence is going on within the organization, it's the perfect opportunity to bring that conversation up. I think that the reason staff get involved with the organization is very different than why parents are sending their kids to it. I know that for me personally and all the stuff I interacted with, we didn't give a shit if you guys found a nice Jewish partner and got married and made babies because we knew that just bringing Jewish people to Jewish experiences was going to help build culture and build connection. And you don't need to have a Jewish partner in order to to want to do that or live a Jewish life. I say that in an interfaith marriage who worked for a Jewish organization. But I think that the reason parents are sending their kids or maybe where some of that pressure or assumption comes from is parents saying, "Ah, go to the organization. You never know. You might meet a nice Jewish spouse one day. And like that old Yiddish kind of like grandparent comes out despite anyone's. I don't know where people think that pressure is coming from because it wasn't coming from the staff that I worked with. But I feel like there's this assumption that that's what we all think and believe, especially because we're not allowed to have these conversations about our motivations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also there's like kind of this weird expectation of finding someone within the organization and, you know, being with a Jewish person. But that only contributes to the really negative hookup culture that is so prevalent there in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, creating like a sex positive environment would obviously be optimal in that, you know, saying that it's shameful for people to hook up or just be sexually active is not at all what I, I can't speak for the organization, but not at all what I would intend to do by, you know, having these consent talks. But at the same time, part of having that positive and meaningful environment is choice. We want to empower our teens by teaching them about consent to have choice whether or not they want to hook up with someone. And what this culture does is teaches our teens that there's only one right way to do things. And I think that parents kind of like play into that. On the one hand, I think that, you know, some parents aren't 
super keen on their children going and hooking up with people that they don't know. Um, But at the same time, there is that pressure to go find someone, to go find a nice Jewish person, although it's usually nice Jewish boy or girl, which again is just very binary. There's that pressure to go find a nice Jewish person, even though realistically, like so many teens come into these organizations not wanting any of that and not coming in with any intention to hook up or engage sexually with anyone in that. So that that culture is really, really negative in the sense that it prevents people from having, or doesn't completely prevent people, but it takes away some extent of their choice and what they do. Yeah, I know that. uh, So one thing that's different about this organization versus some others is it's not divided by grade. Everyone in a chapter, I believe, ranges from grade eight to grade 12. So you'll have eighth graders who are joining specifically because they want to have friends when they go to high school the next year from their area. And they don't want to be, you know, their friends that they go to elementary school with, they might get split up when they all go to different high schools. So they're looking to make new friends. And then they're thrust in a situation where there might be grade 12 boys, which is, oh, so exciting, except you're not actually ready for the conversations that grade 12 boys want to have. And I also know that there's a lot of of the boys involved. I'm sorry to use binary terms just because, you know, it's a binary organization. But a lot of the, the people on the boys' side, they're also not necessarily feeling ready to hook up or engage in these kinds of behaviors, but they're feeling pressure from their peers that they also have to want to hook up and they have to want to pursue people from the other side. And, you know, what happens if you're an LGBT member of this organization? We will be hearing from other people later on in the season who had certain different experiences. I really do think that the people who get harmed in this organization are typically the female identified people. But I think that there's definitely still harm being done to the young men or everyone else in this organization because of this inherent pressure to be someone you might not feel ready to be. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I I couldn't agree with you more that this culture is really negative to everybody involved in the sense that it pressures everybody to do things that they might not be ready to do. And also that sexual violence and sexual harassment does not, I mean, statistically it impacts non-cis men more, but also they can be survivors and they can experience sexual violence as well. So in teaching consent, that's not only, you know, teaching one set of people to be able to set boundaries and one set of people to be able to respect them. It's teaching everybody to be conscious and to be communicating with any potential partners that they have about their own boundaries, as well as asking for the boundaries and for the comfort level and the enthusiasm of any partner that they are wanting to engage with. Right. Like what happens when you're at a a party after a program and, you know, one of the girls assumes that you're interested because you're a boy, because at this point you've been taught that that's, you know, what you want. And, you know, boys can also get assaulted when people assume that they're interested in something that they're not actually interested in. Yeah. There's all of these assumptions going into what people are supposed to be wanting from each other. Yeah. And there's all of these assumptions, not only of what people want, but also what they will be willing to do, or it just, it, continues to feed into less communication, more assumptions, and therefore more blame when someone does get assaulted or isn't comfortable with an experience that they're having or doesn't want what, you know, other people in the organization have deemed to be normal or expected at these events. There's so much shame in it. And if you don't fall into what is considered normal, which is hooking up with X amount of people, that's nor too small or too big, 
If you don't fall into that. Right. That arbitrary body count number. Right. Exactly. If you don't fall into that, there's going to be negative, some sort of negative repercussion or judgment, um, regardless of what side of that, you know, spectrum that you fall on, unless you're perfectly <laughs> where where other people think you should be. But realistically, when we're thinking about where other people want someone to be, that's likely not in line with what that person wants. So again, then we're seeing that people's agency is being taken away. And realistically, if they are hooking up with people or interacting with them because they think that other people want them to, that's you know taking advantage of their own boundaries. And that in itself can be a form of sexual violence. If like it's just coercion, realistically. And so I think it becomes a really dangerous environment to be in. And especially as youth, that's those can be some of people's first sexual interactions. And a lot of times they are. And so going out of that and going into college, going into their lives, they may have learned their boundaries and how to set boundaries and how to communicate in really, really dangerous and um, unhealthy ways. My last question for you before we hit a commercial break. Why do you think it's the responsibility of this youth organization or any youth organization to be having these conversations and, and teaching consent when, you know, it's technically in the curriculum for a lot of sex ed programs in school and parents should be teaching their kids? Why is it the responsibility of a youth organization? Well, I think that this is a space where hooking up happens so frequently that there has to be some sort of compensation for the education and curriculum that is missed. Parents don't always have a super comprehensive education, you know, just because they're adults doesn't necessarily mean that they have the comfort level or the language or whatever it may be to communicate that with their children. And the school system, as I'm sure you know, and hopefully many people listening to this know, as a whole, the institution of schooling does a completely insufficient job of teaching about consent and teaching about sex education. It's super heteronormative, super cis-normative. Focuses on male pleasure. Focuses on male pleasure. Focuses on avoiding pregnancy. You know, it, it's not even it's not even legally mandatory in, in every state. So when we look at that, like it's obvious that there are some, some missing pieces in people's knowledge. So if it's happening so prevalent, if it's so prevalent that people are hooking up in these organizations and, you know, staff and the people in charge are recognizing that, then of course it's our responsibility to be talking about consent. It's a social environment that's different than school in the sense that you're not constantly surrounded and kind of being surveilled by administrators. Um, and so if we're having these environments where teens are able to engage in this way, we need to make sure that there is at least some sort of conversation about what safe behavior looks like. We're not, we're taught from a very young age, you know, respect people's personal space, don't kick people, don't hit people. That's something that we learn since we're in elementary school. But when it comes to sex and sexual activity, people don't often connect those dots that those same principles need to be respected. I think that a lot of people don't see sexual violence so much as violence, and they see it more as, you know, sex without communication when realistically... Yeah, just like, oh, that's just part of a person's experience is that they have to go through these morally upsetting and maybe unsafe situations, but that's just part of learning when it doesn't have to be. Right. So when we when we reposition 
um, are thinking, especially with this legislation and kind of the restrictions set forth by the code of conduct, we really repositioned our thinking to make these consent talks about safety in the same sense that we teach people not to hit each other. It's, it's the same sort of thing, but it needs to be um, emphasized more strongly and more directly because people are so conditioned to think that they don't need to ask for consent. They don't need to be constantly communicating about people's boundaries because for some reason, it's become, it's become common knowledge that there's some gray area around sex and that they don't really realize that the flip side of not communicating, not being really clear um, and giving and receiving consent is actually a form of violence in obviously a different way. Nobody is telling you guys that it's okay to say, I don't actually know what I'm looking for from this, but I'm going to tell you when I'm not okay with it and we're going to stop. And there's that that fear that like, you know, even if you clearly state a boundary, they're going to ignore it anyway. So what's the point? Yeah. And it's like, obviously it's different because it can be much more traumatizing and much more personally invasive, but it seems obvious that we wouldn't hit or kick or punch each other just because, you know? And so in the same way, you wouldn't want to hurt somebody, but at the same time, we're not learning that, you know, trying to engage with someone sexually without gaining consent or without being knowledgeable of their boundaries is a form of violence. I also think one thing that people frequently overlook is that sometimes the sexual pressure, as you were saying, it's happening digitally. I know that there's a lot of pressure for people to be sending each other nudes. And if you say no, then there's a lot of, well, why not? And like a lot of just, you know, pressure around just sending images of yourselves to each other. It doesn't even need to be happening at a convention, but it's happening with people you're meeting at them. And, you know, giving people the tools to navigate those conversations and feel safe to block someone, that's important. Yeah, exactly. I think especially with the conditions that we're in right now, um, digital harassment is so much more prevalent, whether it be with nudes, with sexual messages or videos, and as well as just publicizing people's sexual encounters. There's such a culture where if you hook up with someone, it becomes everybody's business. When realistically, a lot of people are going into their interactions wanting them to be kept private. And you know, whether the communication is clear or not, that ends up being just ignored as people talk about things publicly, post about them, you know, take pictures of things when realistically it's not, it's not theirs to be taking. And on that note, we're going to take a commercial break. Do you want to join the deviants defining elite and actually tell people about it? Are you, like me, a fuck demon? We are launching Sex News with Ray Swag with these common phrases. We've got hats. We've got toques. That's beanies for you Americans. We've got sweatshirts. We've got crop tops. And as usual, all the art was designed by me, so it definitely has my personal flair to it. Check out the new designs at sharewithray.com slash merch slash SNWR and pick up a piece to support the podcast today. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Olivia, I have a listener question. And you might know the answer, you might not. And if you don't, that's okay. But you are clearly very knowledgeable about a lot of sexual issues that young people face. And so our listener question, it's remaining anonymous. Uh, the question is, where can a young person get free condoms and dental dams? So I know the answer for Canada. In the United States, I know that Planned Parenthood gives those out as well as plenty of local clinics. So I would probably advise this person to 
look a little bit into what options are available to them locally. And I also know, depending on what age you are, for instance, my uh, group, Safer, or Students Active for Ending Rape, gives out free protective gear, I guess, free condoms, free things like that um, at school. And so depending on what environments you're in, those things might be actually provided to you for free. um, And you kind of just have to look out for those resources and where you can get them from. Uh, But again, since probably I I doubt that most of the people listening to this are in high school like me. I have no idea who the demographics of my listeners are. So who knows? (laughs) Well, if you're in high school, definitely look at those resources, although you're probably online right now. But you can also go look at your local options, do a quick Google search. Planned Parenthood is a great resource, but there are plenty of local clinics as well that will provide those things for you. Yeah. So even in Ontario, if you look up any sexual health clinic, they will have free condoms. I'm a big fan of the hassle-free clinic. They're one. But there's also a lot of government-run sexual health clinics. You can literally type in Google sexual health clinic and then the city that you live in go incognito if you're worried about your parents finding out and you know the I think one of the bigger issues would be getting a ride yeah (laughs) than actually finding out where to get them from like how do you actually get there if you don't drive and your parents can't drive you and how do you figure that out um and while we're on that note don't store condoms in your wallet they will degrade the latex faster keep them out of sunlight keep them keep them safe that's all Don't poke holes in them. (laughs) Good advice. Oh, and check the expiry date of your condom. If you get a condom as a joke when you're 15, please do not use it when you're 20. It's probably expired. It might not work. Just some things to keep in mind. Okay, you did a great job answering that question. So thank you everyone for listening. Olivia, do you want people to contact or follow you? If the answer is yes, where can they do so? I wouldn't want them to follow me personally. I would say if they want to follow anyone to look at Jewish Teens for Empowered Consent on Instagram. It, they are the writers of the article we were talking about earlier and have some really great resources, especially in the context of youth groups, of what we can be doing better and conversations that we can be having, as well as uh, submitted testimony from teens, uh, just to gain a little bit more perspective on you know, more specific cases of what's happening. So I would really encourage giving them a follow. That's amazing. And by the way, if people want just generally really great infographics on Judaism or anti-Semitism or just any of these topics, Roots Metals is a jewelry designer who also does amazing infographics for anyone who just wants to learn more in general. You can follow the podcast at Sex News with Ray on Facebook and Instagram, and you can submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. You can also just DM me directly at wifebayray on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Razor Latex on Instagram and OnlyFans. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. The theme music is by Blank and Brilliant. A special thank you to Blue Microphones and photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. 